Colossians is God's word to us, so let's pray and ask him for his help. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for this book of Colossians and of the Lord Jesus Christ of whom it speaks. We thank you that he is our saviour and rescuer, the one who offers us full salvation. Pray, Heavenly Father, that we might know more of this great and wonderful salvation that is ours in Christ, that we may live appropriately. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right through the history of the church, there has been a movement known as asceticism. Asceticism. Uh, One dictionary I looked at defines asceticism in this way. It's the doctrine that a person can attain a high spiritual and moral state by practising physical self-denial, extreme abstinence and austerity. Another one puts it this way. Asceticism is the practice of denying bodily desires to draw closer to God. The disciple may include fasting, celibacy, wearing simple or uncomfortable clothing, poverty, sleep deprivation and in extreme forms, flagellation and self-mutilation. So basically the idea is that the more you can avoid physical pleasures, the more spiritual you are. The more you can distance yourself from the stuff of this world, the closer you are to God. That's the theory. As I say, there is a long history of this thinking in the church. Way, way back in the early centuries, there were people called the Desert Fathers. As their name suggests, they left society and they went out into the desert. And they used to do stuff like sit on a pole for years and years and years at a time, just meditating and praying and uh, dispensing advice to the many pilgrims who would come out to the desert to see these so-called spiritual giants. Uh, Asceticism was a very uh, significant part of what was called the monastic movement as well, right through the Middle Ages. That's monasteries. Uh, It's still around today. Monks and nuns, they are supposed to separate themselves from society. And they have to avoid physical stuff, physical pleasures. They have to take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience in one particular case. So no sex, no nice clothes, uh, in some cases even no talking. I love the joke about the man who joined a monastery where there was no talking. He had to take a vow of silence. Uh, He was only allowed to say two words at the end of each year. Um, At the end of the first year, he went to the abbot and the abbot said, So, what are your words, my son? And he said, food, terrible. (laughs) At the end of the second year, he came back to the abbot and the abbot asked him again. And this time he said, bed, uncomfortable. And then then finally, after three years of being in this monastery, he had his opportunity to speak a third time to the abbot. And he said, I quit. (laughs) And the abbot said, well, I should think so. You've done nothing but whinge, grumble and complain since you came here. (laughs) Anyway, right through church history, there's been this movement, asceticism. And right through church history, there have been people, I think most people, have thought of ascetics as being super-Christians, mature, spiritual, godly, extra-spiritual Christians, uh, on a higher plane than we, mere mortals. Now, you know what? I reckon that this is true even for us. 
Even for, for us, if we don't buy the whole monk and nun thing, I am convinced that we are still influenced by this thinking. We still think that a mature Christian is someone who denies themselves, who denies physical pleasure. They don't spend money on themselves, so they don't drive around in a nice flash car or something like that. They don't wear nice clothes. They, they, they don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't dance. They don't play cars. They don't watch TV. They, they, they never read any books except for the Bible. And they're up every morning, 5 o'clock sharp, for three hours of fasting and of prayer. We think that that is real spirituality. And for many of us, it makes us feel a bit second class. I mean, we tried the whole five o'clock prayer thing. All we did was snore. We couldn't wake up. And as much as we admire people who abstain from everything, we like stuff. We enjoy driving a fancy car. We like nice food. We like nice clothes, especially nice shoes. We enjoy playing games, even if they do involve cards. We like to drink beer. We enjoy a glass of wine. We would hate to miss the news or our favourite TV show. We like reading fiction. We try to read the Bible each day. We try to pray each day with our families and by ourselves. But we don't find it easy. And we think we're second class can't attain to this real spirituality, this mature Christianity. Asceticism. It's had a long history in the church and I'm sure it influences our thinking as well. It influences our understanding of what a mature, truly spiritual Christian is like. Well, in our studies in Colossians, we've reached chapter 2 and verse 16. Now, the first thing to notice about this passage is that it begins with the word, therefore. Can you see that? Uh, a wise person once said, you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Uh, the therefore is there, because this passage flows on from the previous passage. Because of what Paul has just been saying, this passage is the consequence. So, what's Paul been saying? Do you remember from last week, Paul has been telling the Colossians about all of the good things we have in Christ. He summarised it by saying that in Christ, all the fullness of God lives. And if we rely on Christ, we have been given fullness. Do you remember we used the illustration of a full meal of salvation? No room left. Nothing to add. A full, Jesus serves up a full meal of salvation. He's done everything that it takes for us to be, as Paul said in chapter 1, verse 22, holy in God's sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Paul tells us that in Jesus we have full salvation. And he then talked about some of the specific things we have as part of this fullness of salvation. He said that in Christ we have true circumcision. Uh, the way it works is this, you may remember, uh, that, that he talks about our being united to Christ. When you rely on Jesus, you become united to him like in a marriage, which means that everything that belongs to him becomes yours. Everything that he owns becomes yours. And that includes his death and resurrection. When you trust in Jesus, God considers that your old life of sin is dead in the death of Christ. When you trust in Jesus, God considers that you have a new resurrected life in Jesus, a new eternal life. 
So when you trust in Jesus, your old life of sin is cut off. You're set apart now for God for in a new life. And that means, says Paul, you have the reality of what Old Testament circumcision was pointing to. You have true circumcision. Also, Paul says, when you trust in Jesus, God forgives and pardons you for your failure to keep his law. Uh, we have failed to keep God's law. We have failed to give God the obedience we owe him. But in Christ, do you remember, the IOU is nailed to the cross. Our debt is paid. Paul also says, when you trust in Jesus, any accusation against you is taken away. And that means Satan and any other spiritual enemies have no power over you. They have been stripped of their weapons. They are disarmed and defeated. In Jesus, we have fullness of salvation. And therefore, Paul says in the passage that we're looking at today, therefore, that has certain implications. Because you have fullness of salvation, Paul says it means three things. It, it means you must not let three things happen. You must not let three things happen. The first thing Paul says to the Colossians is this. He says, don't let anyone judge you. Don't let anyone judge you. The false teachers were, it seems, encouraging the Colossians to follow Jewish food laws. That meant eating kosher, no prawns and pork and lobster and that kind of stuff, and it meant no food or drinks offered to idols. They were also telling the Colossians that they needed to follow the Jewish religious calendar. They had to take Saturday as a Sabbath, and they had to participate in the other festivals as well, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and so on. Paul says, don't let them judge you. Don't let them condemn you based on what food you eat or what drink you drink or on what holidays you celebrate. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Have a look with me. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Paul gives the reason. He says that all these things from the Old Testament law, they're just a shadow. They're not the real thing. Now Jesus has come. He has brought the reality that these things pointed to. So, for example, Jesus has brought the reality of the food laws. The food laws were meant to keep God's people ceremonially clean and to keep them separate from the nations, to keep them set apart for God. Well, Paul says, in Jesus, you are really clean. You are really set apart for God. You have the reality of the food laws we're pointing to. Or... Um, Jesus has also brought the reality of the Jewish holidays. The Jewish holidays were opportunity to find rest in God, to, to find peace and joy in God. They were a, a glimpse of, 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 of our eternal rest in God. Well, in Jesus, you have been given the real thing. You have eternal rest and peace and joy in God. All of those Old Testament things, they were pointing to Jesus. And so now if you have Jesus, they are all surpassed. Finished. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. If you have Jesus, you have the reality that the Old Testament foreshadowed. And so, says Paul, don't let anyone judge or condemn you about Old Testament practices or ceremonies or rules. Follow them if you want to, but you don't have to follow them if you don't want to. Now, of course, um, 
there is a classic modern example of this kind of thinking that's around today. It's called Seventh-day Adventism. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists say that you have to follow the Saturday Sabbath, like in the Old Testament. And they say that you should follow some of the Old Testament food laws. And perhaps if you've been in the San Hospital up in uh, Warunga, you've uh, been exposed to the kind of food laws that they have, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists. Well, Paul's message for us about people like Seventh-day Adventists is this. They are perfectly entitled to have church on Saturday if they want to. No problem. And they are perfectly entitled to eat or not eat what they want to. They want to be vegetarians? Good on them. No problem. Hopefully they don't think that they're adding to what Jesus has done. Hopefully they don't think they're improving on his salvation. That would be a very serious problem. And if you look at Seventh-day Adventist documents, they're pretty careful about saying that they're not adding to Jesus. But, but it's no problem for them to eat kosher or to worship on Saturdays. Fine, don't judge them. But don't let them judge you either. Those things, the Sabbath, the food laws, they're just a shadow. If you have Jesus, you have the reality. You have full salvation. Nothing more to add. You don't have to follow their rules. Don't let them judge you. Second thing. The second thing that Paul says to the Colossians is this. He says, don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let anyone disqualify you. Now, the word that he uses is, uh, it's a word that was used in, in sport. In those days, it's like a, an umpire's decision in sport. So the picture is something like this. The Colossians were running the Christian race. They, they, were, they were running along in the Christian race, running well, but then these teachers have come in and they're kind of self-appointed umpires or referees. And so as the Colossians are running, maybe a good example would be um, a walking race. Remember that walking race where the Australian was going so well and then got disqualified for taking both feet off the ground, this is the Olympics a little while ago, so they're going really well in this walking race, but then this self-appointed judge comes and goes, uh-uh, you're not doing it right, you're disqualified. Uh, you're not doing it properly, you're not, you're not running or walking the right way, you're not going to get the prize. Don't let them disqualify you, says Paul. Uh, Paul says some other stuff about the teachers. He says they delight in what the NIV calls false humility. They delight in kind of humble practices. They look so religious and humble as they follow all their self-imposed rules, as they deny themselves stuff, fasting and so on, as, they deny, as, as they're really being classic ascetics. They look so humble. Uh, he also says they delight in the worship of angels. Strange little expression, don't you think? Uh, it, it's possible that that means that they worship angels. Or it's possible that they mean, it means that they join in the worship of angels, like Isaiah does in Isaiah chapter 6. Although I think it's more likely that Paul is referring to the Jewish tradition that the Old Testament law was given to Moses by angels. And so the worship, or better translated, the religion of angels, is the religion given by angels to Moses. In other words, it's the Old Testament law, the Old Testament Judaism. These blokes, they delight in following all the Jewish rules. They look so religious as they abstain from this food and that and do all their religious stuff and they're telling the Colossians, you're running the Christian race the wrong way. It's not good enough to just rely on Jesus. You're going to be disqualified if you don't follow what we're telling you to do. Our rules, our practices, our ceremonies. Paul says, don't let them do it. Don't let them disqualify you. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. 
Paul tells the Colossians more about these false teachers. He says that they go into great detail about what they have seen. Now that may be talking about some kind of visions that they've had, although again I think actually what Paul is referring to is something much more ordinary. My guess is the teachers have been to Jerusalem and they go on and on about what they've seen there. We've been to the home of Judaism. We've seen the tomb where where Jesus was laid. We've seen the place where Jesus was crucified. We've been to the holy temple of Judaism. We've seen God's special place. We know a thing or two about God. We can tell you about God. They're like one of those ministers who's just been on a holiday to the Holy Land. You can't get them to shut up about it for sermon after sermon, for years after years. They go on about when they were in the Holy Land as if you can't understand the Bible unless you've been to Israel. These guys go on and on about what they've seen. Uh, Paul also says that they're puffed up. They're they're proud of their religion and their teaching. They think they're oh so superior with their harsh rules that they follow. The problem, Paul says, is this. They've lost connection with Jesus. They've lost connection with the only one who can truly grow them. They've lost connection with the only one who can give them the prize at the end of their race. They've come to rely on their rules instead of Jesus. Halfway through verse 18. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Paul has one more instruction. He says, don't submit to their rules. He uses a couple of images that uh, we saw last week, a couple of images He talks again about the elements of the world. Do you remember that image from from, from last week? Uh, The NIV translates it, the basic principles of the world. As we thought about last week, he probably just means the physical stuff of this world. So the teachers, my guess is they were saying something like, you have to avoid physical stuff like food to be truly spiritual, to to transcend the bodily realm and and, and enter into true spirituality. You've got to to, um, abstain or avoid physical stuff, elements of the world. Uh, Another image from last week that Paul uses is he talks about, again, about our union with Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are united to him. His death and resurrection become ours. As far as our old life of sin is concerned, when we trust Jesus, we are dead to it. But what he does now is this. He puts the two images together. Paul says, because of our union with Christ, we don't belong to this world and its elements anymore. We are dead to them. In the death of Jesus. And that means this. They don't make any difference. They don't make any difference. The elements of this world have no effect on our spiritual status. The physical stuff of this world has no effect on our salvation in Jesus. What we eat, what we touch, it does not make any difference. And so Paul says... Don't submit to rules about physical stuff. 
what you can eat or drink or touch, as if rules like that can save you or add to Jesus' salvation, as if avoiding physical things can make you more spiritual. Don't follow their rules, he says. Verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul says these rules will die out. They're not what God wants. They're just human inventions and they're going to perish with the teachers who made them up. Verse 22. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. And finally, Paul says, these rules, they don't actually help you to be any more godly anyway. They might make you look more godly. You're the one with the tired eyes from being up at five o'clock in the morning praying. You're the one with the thin tummy and the the drawn look from fasting or something like that. They might make you look more godly because you've got a frown on your face instead of a smile. They might make you look more godly, but they don't change your heart. They don't help you to hate sin and love God. Verse 23. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Of course, this idea that rules can't change your heart, uh, it was famously rediscovered by Martin Luther in the early 1500s. Uh, Luther was a monk in the early 1500s And he tried everything to make himself more spiritual, everything to get rid of sin, to live a life worthy of God. He tried all the ceremonies. He tried all the sacraments possible. Uh, He went to confession dozens and dozens of times every day. The the abbot and the other monks, he would drive them crazy. Please, Martin, don't make me have to take your confession again. It's the 43rd time today or something like that. Um, He he tried all the ascetic practices, even whipped himself, no food, no sex, all of that kind of stuff. He soon came to realise it wasn't doing the job. His sin wasn't gone. But worse than that, he came to realise that he wasn't growing in love for God. In fact, he was growing to hate God. As he saw God as this burdensome, rule-imposing, tough taskmaster. He writes this. He says, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. That's by all the good things he was doing and the whipping and the ceremonies and the sacraments. Could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. More than that, I did not love... Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. And secretly, if not blasphemy, certainly murmuring greatly, I was angry with God. Luther looked around at the monastery and he saw that he wasn't alone. Asceticism did not deal with the sin problem. He describes the monasteries as being full of loose living as people just lived worse in the monasteries than they did outside the monasteries. Or he describes them as being places full of compromise where people would lower the bar so that they could jump over it. He described them as being places of pride and of bitterness. He said people there did not love God at all. They were either proud or bitter and burdened. 
It wasn't until Luther discovered that Jesus saves us by grace alone that he was set free. It wasn't until he discovered that God actually loves us, that God has done everything necessary for our salvation, that Luther himself started to love and appreciate and enjoy God. He talks about how he felt in these words. As he learned about God's grace to us in Jesus, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. It's only as he realised the grace and love of God that he actually loved God. Well, the Apostle Paul is clear about it. Ascetic practices may make you look spiritual, but they don't change your heart. They just make you proud if you do them, or else bitter and burdened as you kind of dutifully plug on, or else they make you feel guilty if you don't do them. They look good, but they don't make you hate sin and love God. Okay. Can you see what's here in our passage today? The Colossians have full salvation in Jesus. And so there are these three things that they must not allow. Don't let the false teachers judge them. Don't let them disqualify them. And don't follow their rules. Do you know what? I reckon it is critical that we get this. It is vital for our Christian growth and our Christian joy and our whole understanding of God that we understand this stuff. Asceticism has a long history. Asceticism, I am sure, influences our thinking, but that does not make it right. Asceticism is a wrong way of thinking. It is a false teaching. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. If you are relying on him, he gives you everything to completely save you and make you a first-class, fully-fledged, nothing-to-add Christian. So what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, it makes no difference. What holidays you have, what rules you follow, they make no difference. They make no difference to your spiritual status. You cannot get any higher spiritual status than being united to Christ by faith. If you are united to Christ by faith, you have Jesus' spiritual status. It's actually better than you can manage on your own. So, what does all this mean? Well, if someone wants to give up meat for Lent, or chocolate for Lent or something like that, good on them. As long as they don't think it's adding to Jesus, no problem. If someone wants to wear a monk's habit or a bearskin shirt or, or take a vow of silence or remain single, good for them. As long as they don't think they're adding to what Jesus has done, no issue. If someone wants to give up dancing or, or playing cards or watching TV, it's fine. As long as they don't think they're adding to Jesus, no worries. If someone wants to sit on a pole for 20 years or, or lie on a bed of nails or whip themselves... Okay, your life. As long as you don't think you're adding to the salvation Jesus has won for you, it's no sin. If someone wants to go to church ten times a week, if they want to read the Bible and pray all day, if they want to give all their money to missionaries, bully for them. As long as they don't think they're adding to Jesus, it's all good stuff. 
But friend, don't think they're any more spiritual than you are. Missing out on stuff doesn't make you a better Christian. Being miserable doesn't make you a better Christian. Driving a car that's breaking down doesn't make you a better Christian. Following religious practices doesn't make you a better Christian. The fact is this, only Jesus can make you any sort of Christian. And he only makes one kind of Christian. The fully saved, perfect before God kind. That's all there is. You're either that or you're nothing. And as Paul has said, all those rules, they don't work anyway. Even humanly speaking, they don't make you more like Jesus. I'll tell you what they do make you more like. You remember that story of the prodigal son and the big brother who always did everything that was right but never really loved his father? That's what they make you like. Proud, bitter. Like Luther said, they're much more likely to make you hate God than love him. Asceticism might look good, but it has no value in changing our hearts. So friends, don't let them judge you. Don't let them disqualify you. Don't follow their rules as if you can add in any way to what Jesus has done. Friends, just rely on Jesus. Just rest in Jesus. Remember his wonderful grace. Remember his wonderful kindness to you. Know his love. Know his peace. And say thank you very, very much. Rejoice. Because you cannot get any more saved. You cannot get any more spiritual than you are through the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty God, our gracious and holy Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary and wonderful mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have perfect and full salvation. We stand before you blameless, without any accusation or blemish, holy in your sight. Father, we thank you for Jesus and we pray that you would help us to stand firm in him, rooted and built up in him and overflowing with thankfulness. We pray it in Jesus' name.